1993, the writer John Krakauer published an article in Outside Magazine. It told the story of Christopher McCandless, also known as Alexander Supertramp, at least that's what he called himself, and his journey essentially away from the world. You may also be familiar with the story from the book called Into the Wild that stemmed from the original article and, of course, the film that was made by Sean Penn. I love that movie, although it's tragic. And if you've seen it, you know why it's tragic, but I won't give it away. A young man has completed his college education and realizes that everything in his life has amounted to a lie and that he's been set up to be a cog in a machine, the capitalist machine, and he doesn't want to be a part of it. And this, of course, comes as a tremendous shock to his parents and to his friends and to his girlfriend because everything that he's been taught and everything that he's been geared towards and directed towards in his entire life, he suddenly steps away from. They can't understand it. But to him, it makes perfect sense. He gives away all his money to Oxfam and he heads out on a journey which ultimately puts him in the middle of the wilderness in Alaska, where he tries to survive, living essentially as a latter-day hunter-gatherer. Christopher McCandless could no longer live in the world as it was constructed. He had seen, if you will, behind the curtain, and the guts of the machine, its inner workings, were anathema to him. The story resonated with me at the time, and I don't think that I was really sure why. But as I soon explain in my introduction to the upcoming interview with Christopher McDougall, author of two books, Born to Run and Natural Born Heroes, the intellectual transformation that I've undergone in the past half decade has largely fallen along those same lines. I feel that I fully understand what drove Christopher McCandless to simply walk away from empire, to steal a phrase from Guy McPherson. I am by no means built to homestead. I am a person who is very much attached to the grid. I have a family, and I live in the suburbs. So for me, a departure from the civilized world is not in the offing. And so in some ways, I live vicariously through those who do. In my conversation with Christopher McDougall, we talk at length about the ways in which our society essentially tells us lies, and that all the things that we rely upon, from the cereal that we eat, to the shoes that we put on our feet, to the wars that we wage, are all constructs of an illusory system. In fact, it provides us with a great more harm than it does anything else. But of course, in order to sell these items, a narrative has to be crafted. And that story is, you need all that stuff. It's good for you. You can't run a mile without a lot of padding between your heel and the concrete. But in fact, what we know is from studying hunter-gatherers, who, as Christopher McDougall understands it, were born to run, you actually can run barefoot and it's a lot healthier for you. These and other ideas are ones that we touch upon in what amounts to a wide-ranging conversation that I think is anchored to this one major idea. We need to unforget all of the things that our civilization has taught us to forget in the last eight, nine, ten thousand years. In the final 10 minutes of this episode, you'll hear from Paul Sherbin, who's a young man, a recent graduate from college, much like Christopher McCandless, and the two of us, in fact, invoke the ironic connections between the two of them. Because what Paul Sherbin wanted to do in August of last year was ride his bicycle across the United States of America. He didn't have the same kind of radical wish for departure for severing the connection between him and a society that he felt was corrosive and harmful and bad. Instead, Paul Sherbin wanted to ride across the country to get to know himself, and in doing so, unburden some of the personality characteristics that he feels hold him back, which include his deep-seated fear of rejection. And so I welcome you to this episode of What We Will Abide, a conversation about how running can be a means to unforgetting, and a conversation about a young man who rides in order to forget himself. I am an animal like this donkey, and when I'm out with the donkey, running with the donkey, the more I behave like an animal, um, 
the better we go. I read Chris McDougall's book, Born to Run, six years ago, and it completely transformed the way I thought about my body. It also touched off a number of other intellectual sparks that led to the genesis of this podcast, which of course is called What We Will Abide. I've had several conversations with Chris McDougall over the last few years, but I've always wanted the chance to sit down with him and talk more in depth about some of the ideas that came to life, for me at least, as a result of reading the book. For example, for me, learning that running barefoot after one's prey was a rather common occurrence for certain hunters in certain climates around the world during the Paleolithic period was, at the time, directly related to some of the other discoveries I was making about civilized life, how it came to be, especially as a result of the arrival of totalitarian agriculture, as Daniel Quinn calls it. These two ideas had immediate resonance for me and touched off a whole slew of other thoughts about simply what isn't working in the way of life to which we have become so accustomed, or more accurately, to which we have been told we have become so accustomed. A not-so-gradual process which has resulted, quite deliberately, in the veritable eradication of any kind of way of life that came before. Okay, so I'm Chris McDougall. Uh, I'm a writer, and I wrote uh, two books, Born to Run and Natural Born Heroes. Okay. I can go into more detail if you like. Six foot four, about 210 pounds. (laughs) So you wrote this book, uh, Born to Run. Yeah. Shoes, uh, sneakers, Um, at least what I gleaned from from what you wrote was that sneakers actually are doing the exact opposite of what they're sort of designed to do. Um, They, in fact, inhibit your body from doing its natural business. Uh, the way that I understood it, and you can you know correct me if I've if I've <laughs> sort of morphed this into my own understanding over the years, but basically your foot is a natural suspension system, and you have ways of um, protecting yourself from injury to your joints based on sort of all the bones in your foot and the way that they operate. Um, when you put a shoe on, the cushioning therein kind of stops that from happening, stops that natural process right. from happening. So people land. On the back of their foot, which is called heel striking, heel striking, yeah. uh, as opposed to midfoot striking or toe striking, yeah, and that kind of screws up the whole system. Is the way that I understand it. Just that word alone, striking. Yeah, when you run barefoot, you don't strike. You just kind of glide in for a landing. And how exactly you do that doesn't really matter. What's important is the fact that you're coming in gently, and of course, you're coming in gently because there's no cushion there to absorb the blow. So you naturally will bend all of your joints and instinctively land as lightly as possible. When you have a big fat wad of foam under your foot, you don't care how you come crashing down. And that's where the sloppiness starts to enter the equation. Right. And the sloppiness can lead to, you name it. Yeah, you name it. Basically <laughs> everything, you know, uh, running injuries, but more, even more importantly than the injuries, it's like this distaste for running. Running becomes an unpleasant process. Uh, it's like you know being in a bumpy car without suspension. You're, you're banged, you're banged around. Mm-hmm. And after a while, you just don't like it anymore. It's an unpleasant sensation. When you take your shoe off and you start to land lightly and gently, and all of your joints are kind of compressing and expanding again, it's pleasurable. You know, it feels like getting a, a massage, and you want to repeat the process. So, in doing this for myself, I stopped having injuries. Of course, hitting my forties, those injuries come just naturally. Yeah. Um, but before that, I, you know, all the hip and back pain that I had as a result of running and also playing basketball in sneakers um, sort of went away. And that, that was sort of an instant miracle that I noticed. The other thing that I noticed was I could run longer right. with less windedness. Yeah. I mean, what I really learned from this whole process were, were, were two things. You know, one is that... We think that whatever we're doing in the year 2016 like in America is what humans have done like forever. You know, that we're just continuing the process. And the second thing was, it is unbelievable how much crap people will tell you that really sounds like it's science. That sounds like they really know what they're talking about. And they don't. As a way of like making you buy something, they will tell you things. They'll package things right. that really sounds authoritative. And that combination of things... Uh, 
the fact that we think that everyone must have always had running shoes and that the people selling them to you must really know what they're doing just lures you in. And that, to me, is what it's all about. And that, that's where the problems come from. Part of me got sad when I read the book because I was yeah. like, yeah. more lies. Right. Really deep-seated, systemic, like basic lies like – you know, television commercials, you drive past a footlocker, you, everybody wears shoes, like whatever the, however you want to approach it. Like yeah. the whole idea is humans were built to wear shoes yeah. um, to protect their feet. Yeah. And it's just an inherent lie. Well, that's what I was getting at too when you talked about how when you take your shoes off, you run further, you run lighter, you run with fewer injuries. And to me, it all, it all sort of boils down to the same thing is that there is this expectation put on you. You have to go fast. You have to go far. You have to do this. You have to do that. You have to wear shoes. And then when you break through the have tos, you can run slowly. You can take your time. You can learn how to run barefoot. If you treat it more like an art instead of this obligation, you know, the sense of, you know, that you must turn out work product. You must race a marathon as fast as you can. And in order to race a marathon, you need to have the best shoes and the most expensive shoes. All those obligations, get rid of the obligations and then start to think for yourself. And you see, realize that it becomes pleasurable only because you're not pushing yourself to do something that isn't natural. But haven't we sort of, be, this is all part and parcel of the fact that we convinced ourselves that progress and profit are, are, are the purpose for, every, for life. I mean, that's what that's what that sounds like to me. Is yes. that like yeah. we have got like we have somehow evolved like civilization again? There's that dirty word has evolved to the point where it's like this is the only way for us to think about success. Like even the word success. Like you're talking about running as an art. Well, if that were the case, then I mean you wouldn't have these two hundred dollars shoes and a whole industry and Phil Knight and yeah, yeah. all that right. stuff. You just right. you wouldn't have it. You wouldn't have athletics in the way that it's it's sort of set up to be with yeah. the jillions of dollars that it generates. Yeah, yeah. I, I would blow up all of it. I mean, I would literally blow up all. I mean, not literally. I'm not, <laughs> I, I do draw a line in explosives, uh, but you know. This was it past you remember the Olympics were recently and people are all on fire with the Olympics. I'm kind of I know. appalled by that. I know. I, I know. I it's felt the same big way. Big nations beating up on little nations. And how many medals did you get? And then who are these people? Who cares? Well, and, and then like if you watch, as we are sort of forced to watch in the United States, it's all about the United States athletes and, and how great all of our swimmers are, how great all our you know gymnasts are. Yeah. And yes, they're great, but the jingoism... Yeah. And the sort of the forced sense of sensationalism, and you know, it has always felt to me watching any kind of sport that the announcers are there to make you feel stupid, or or like or they assume you're stupid, they assume you know nothing, yeah. and that you need to be educated about who the right person is to root for, yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. that's just infuriating to me. Well, this is where I, I tend to like discredit myself in any conversation, particularly <laughs> when you're talking about running, because if you say like, you know what, I'm not, I don't really see the point of competition. At that point, they, they realize, okay, you're posing as a runner, and therefore I don't have to listen to anything you have to say from that point on. But people ask me like, what my best marathon time is. Like, I, I really don't care. Don't know. Don't care. Right. I literally don't care at all. It gets back to your earlier point about success being measured by product and profits. Leisure time is, is like a dirty phrase now. You know, <laughs> if you're not busy, there's something wrong with you. If you're not competing, there's something wrong with you. Um, if you don't have the right stuff, there's something wrong with you. And, and that's where I think the, the, the sort of virus creeps in. And so if you're running, well, that's really fun. You know, a five-year-old, your kids, if they're running, they're happy. Mm -hmm. happy that's happiness. But it's not really uh, morally good to be happy. You should be kind of unhappy. You should always be a little bit unhappy. You should always be a little bit dissatisfied. Why? Why is that? I would take it back to, if I could chuck a dart at the calendar and pick a moment in history, probably, yeah. you know, slightly after World War II. You know, we, we cranked up for World War II. We were all about production. We were going to win civilization because we were going to outproduce, turn out more soldiers, more stuff, more stuff. And then right after that, there were good wages and there was a lot of money. And that's when we started to accumulate. To me, like, that was a really the, the turning point of American capitalism. You know, there was stuff in the past. We were a capitalist society. But post-World War II, mm -hmm. that's when everything got cranked up. You could get all this stuff in your house and these cars. And there was the money and the productivity to do it. And that was it. And that's when things went off to the races. And, and those are the moments when you watch how everything became centralized post-World War II. For instance, you know, in Philadelphia, I forget the exact number. There, there's something like 125 professional baseball fields in the city of Philadelphia. Now there's one. You know? And what it was, every neighborhood had its own ballpark. That's where the Negro Leagues were, huge in Philadelphia. 
But after, you know, World War II, which in a way was a good thing because we started right. to. But the thing about it was every neighborhood had a team or a semi-pro team. You walked down the street, you watched your team with the kid that you went to school with and the butcher that you got your meat from playing there. And then it, it was not about that anymore. It was about having the best team with the richest athletes win the title every year. Well, I mean, certainly that's what professional sports is completely and totally about now. And it trickles on down through the NCAAs, which is as corrupt a system as any professional sports system um, in any country. Um, You know, obviously American football here, basketball too, baseball, but you go to Italy, England, you know, where soccer is the main uh, sport, the, the corruption there is is just as, as nefarious. I'll tell you, beyond corruption, how about downright immorality and homicide? How about that? Here's the situation, too. Uh, there's a guy named Patrick Ruby, H-R-U-B-Y. He's been following uh, the difficulty, the concussion difficulties and the mortality rate in high school athletics. And he said, essentially, at this point, there is no ethical justification for adolescents playing contact football. No one's, none whatsoever. Right. There's only one reason why you do it. It's a great feeding pot for the NFL. Right. Because if you're, you're, you're feeding in players, you're feeding in spectators. And what they've found is they've done studies, the tastes that you form in adolescence will be your tastes the rest of your life. So if you like hot dogs and beans when you're 12, at 55, you'll still like hot dogs and beans. If you like football, that's going to be your sport for life. So it's in the NFL's total vested interest to get you hooked on football at 12 because you'll still be watching it and spending money on it age 50. That is the strongest rationalization for why adolescent football continues and why parents allow it. So I'm going to um, take your point about World War II being this kind of, um, you know, this uh, crux, this turning point, right? This cog. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say, I think it goes back even further than that. Yeah. You're talking about leisure time. You're talking about values. You're talking about happiness being immoral, <laughs> um, which I think you're right about in this really sad way. Um, and I feel like, again, this goes back to the, so the advent of the arrival of civilization where human beings began to change what their value system was, yeah. where the culture changed, where the culture became monoculture, one culture. Yeah. Again, I often quote Daniel Quinn, who I don't know if you're familiar, you're familiar with him. So this is his whole thing about this, um, which he's written about numerous times in the Ishmael trilogy and in Beyond Civilization, where it's like, we went from having basically human beings went from having kind of one mentality about the way life should be lived, um, which is to say there is no right way for life to be lived. And you had all the different cultures and all what we call, I guess, indigenous societies now, most of whom are all gone, who lived the way they lived. And it worked for them because that's the way evolutionary biology works. It, it keeps what works. We've chosen to live a, 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 in a system, a way of life that actually in a lot of ways, and you can comment on this or ignore it, isn't working. Um, but that aside, what it's done is it's changed the way we look at all of those other you know, ways of living. Like, again, hunter-gatherers, for example, 12 to 15 hours a week of work. The rest of the time spent running, you know, uh, playing games, singing songs, telling stories, educating their children, just taking naps. It took a lot of naps. Yeah. 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 So, like, that sounds like a really idyllic lifestyle to me, you know? Yeah. But I'm looked at like I'm some kind of communist if, if, if I say that I only want to work 15 hours a week and the rest of the time I want to spend it with my friends and family. Yeah. So at some point in time, it shifted from gather, hunt what you need, and leave the rest to consume, 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 consume. Right. And I think it's the advent of agriculture and the domestication of plants and animals that did that. I like the fact that you use the <laughs> pejorative, like some kind of communist oh you mean some person likes to share right yeah how yeah. dare you right no it's 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 those are those dark terms to use uh, yeah absolutely sure that's where um it became possible to uh sink down your roots and accumulate goods and you know till one area as opposed to you know migrate around to other areas but again i felt like it was okay it was sustainable things were family oriented and again i i dimly recall this from my own youth you know i was born in 62 and my family's from South Philadelphia, which remained in the 50s for a good 20 years past everybody else, you know. <laughs> South Philly was still in the 50s, in the 80s. And okay. So you can still see things like this, you know, basement family parties where the entire extended family was in a tiny basement, like 100 people in, you know, 20 by 20 space. And old ladies sitting on the stoop and everyone knowing each other. That lifestyle still existed where you um, participated rather than spectated. That was a South Philadelphia way. And so to me, I think that, that, that's why I want to think that it was, it was not an ideal solution, but a manageable one. But then things went haywire 
again, to me, right after World War II. I think we may, we should, do go down the neo-tribal road. I, I really think that. You're talking about, you know, Philadelphia in the 70s and 80s as having a kind of sort of tribal feel to it. Yeah. Um, and I think that what the 80s, 90s have done is turned us into these very atomized, siloed, very individual, created those situations for us where we're, we're no longer in communities. This whole concept of, you know, that the United States is this horrible, you know, chasm between the right and the left, whatever that means, and it's so divisive, uh, somehow we have to find a way to fix it. Well, maybe we don't. Maybe we just embrace the chasm and say, okay, it's over. There's no coming together. Let's, in fact, coalesce with our affinity groups and let's be more tribal. Let's say even here in Lancaster, maybe the federal government is throwing us, kicking us to the curb. Fine. Let's take care of ourselves. We have healthcare professionals. We have engineers. We have people who know how to do stuff. We have farmers. Let's be intensely local in a neo-tribal kind of way and share that awful, terrible, you know, <laughs> you know, communist word, um, and that'll save us from destruction. Um, I have two immediate thoughts. Uh, one is hope. Like, hey, I hadn't considered that before. Mm-hmm. I really hope it works. <laughs> but my second thought is like, eh. I love the idea of intense local codependence. But my worry is, I almost feel like that's why we lost the election in the first place. Because, like, whatever we think is going to work, people who, I don't even know how to categorize them, but based on the forces of darkness, <laughs> they figure it out way better than we do. Yeah. And, again, and I think my, my concern right now is, um, it's not even really the politics. You know, the politics are what it's going to be. My, my concern now is the rapacious... Um, sort of bloodlust that has been let loose. And that's what bothers me. I feel like there is like a, a, a dominant Gallic tribe that is sort of you know, a Mongolian horde crossing the landscape. And the rest of us who actually hope for better things are just like sitting ducks. So, right. And that, that's the use that... The, tribalism has been co-opted as a word that means the thing that you just said it, it means, right? It's, it's, it's the barbarian hordes right. taking down the gates of Rome. Yeah. Um, and I think that I'd like to take back tribalism. I'd like to say, no, it, you know, um, tribalism is good. Let me put it like this. I think tribalism, the way we look at it is Native American tribes, you right. know? Yes. And who's showing up? The colonial powers, you know? <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden, man, there's these big, massive ships showing up with gunpowder and the rest of us who just want to, like, take down a couple of deer every once in a while and raise some kids and eat some corn, we're f- <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let's take that down its natural uh, to its natural logical conclusion. Yeah. What does f- look like? Yeah. This, by the way, while you're thinking about that, this, uh, <laughs> you know, in the past, in past conversations I've had, I have deliberately pushed people to think about collapse. Yeah. In these conversations I have for this podcast, I don't, and it just naturally goes well, there. right to it, man. <laughs> yeah, I, well, right to, well, right from Bifford running to the apocalypse. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder what, what collapse looks like because on my better moments, I think, well, all right, we just got to ride this out for like 18 months. But what I'm really concerned about is the capacity for something, the worst thing we've ever seen in history is, is could happen. What would that be? If, if I were China, I'd be like, yeah, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. We're not going to get another Trump. It's mm-hmm. a jump now. Let's right. provoke this idiot into something aggressive where we can come firing in you know, with nuclear warheads and literally plan a nuclear strike on the United States. Why not? Why not destroy this country? I don't think that they're interested in a military engagement, but I do think that this is their, their like, they are champing at a bit uh, in terms of like crushing us economically. Military force has never been the smartest solution, but it hasn't stopped people from doing it all the time. Like yeah, explain Japan's you know reasoning in Pearl Harbor. How is that a good strategy? Yeah. Yeah, off they go. Right. You know, look, look what, what you know Hitler had in mind. Crazy as he was, lots of other people signed off. Man, lots of people just you know suited up and went to war. Uh, there hasn't been a major conflict in modern times that makes any sense. None of them are, are logical. Uh, World War Two illogical. World War One ridiculously illogical from from top to bottom. Right. Our wars of aggression in the Mideast, ridiculously stupid, yet we do them. So right. That's why I'm, that's my concern is, doesn't seem logical that China would, would launch a military attack, but why not? You know, going by history, that's what people do. Okay, so how do you cope with what seems like a real tangible 
fear that you're maybe living with on a day-to-day basis now? Well, you know, at this point, my, my one hope is I don't know what's going on. Like, I, I had I, this is, and I think it's a combination of two things with me. One is um, I'm living that trope that like the older I get, the less I feel like I know. I'm much less certain about things, uh, even before this election, than I was a few years ago. Like I, I have like doubts. Like I don't think I really understand things the way I once you know had the the brio that I did. So. Um, I, I keep finding myself wrong about stuff. I mean, just looking at the election as an example, I really thought people felt differently. I thought that we are going to really kind of end racism, sexism in our lifetime. And that, that was not idealistic. I thought we were going to age it out. Mm. Uh, that anything with prejudice against people of different sexual orientation, eh, it's basically once our grandparents are gone, we're done with it. And now I feel like, no, it's completely wrong. And this thing with Trump is what bugs me is not not so much that the uh, college kids didn't show up because Bernie Sanders wasn't there to give them free tuition anymore. I'm I'm, I'm surprised and annoyed that people really think the people that turned out actually this guy is, is the answer to their prayers. Yeah. These are people you have interviewed, right? Oh, yeah. These are people you know. Oh yeah. Um, especially where you live. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what you know? What would, what would you ask them in an interview? If were you sort of doing? Uh, a piece on on what you just said, like just to, you know, getting the feel of the crowd. What would you ask them? And I've had this conversation okay. too. And actually, last night, our some of our neighbors, our Mennonite neighbors, invited us to church service and we went back to their house afterwards. And that's where you know I think when I was using that, that term, you know, and I don't want to use this with my Mennonite neighbors who I genuinely like a lot, but I'll use blindness, the self-imposed blindness. You hit one stone wall. This guy is a good businessman. He's going to get us more money. Well, no, he's not. Either one of those two things. But that's it. That's where the conversation ends. It's funny because back during the Bush presidencies, it was a moral um, choice. Right. I was hearing about gay marriage marriage all the time. Now I'm hearing the financial ones. Uh, And one more point, too. In some ways, I think Barack Obama made it a little bit worse because... I used to hear this in the feed store. You know, remember in the feed store, there's always people standing around shooting a breeze. And it, it wouldn't be rare that I would hear a conversation about somebody who felt their life, li- lives would be better if they were black. So an old guy in the feed store, like, well, you know what? My Medicare is cut back and I'm not getting what I need. And different if I were a different color. Really? I said, really? You think being a black man in America, you'd actually be better You've off? heard that. Oh, absolutely, yes. And the reason why the, the mentality is that you know, all the minorities out there are getting away with stuff. They're getting away with so stuff. So this backlash against that? that yes. Is that what this was? And that's why I think the wall and the immigrants coming through, it's not they're coming to take our jobs. It's they're coming to take our benefits. They're coming to get our welfare and our schools mm-hmm. and they're in our hospitals. It's... Do you I'm hear that? Do you hear that? No. Uh, the, all that, I ever hear about unspoken. is the emergency rooms. Oh, yeah, they're crowding emergency rooms. Mm-hmm. Like, like you give a shit about an emergency room in Tempe, Arizona. <laughs> you know? That's your concern. But... Um, and that's that's right because it, it was baffling to me too. It's like wait a second, this immigrant situation—it's—it's it's not a problem. It's like not a problem. It's definitely not a problem in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. It's not the jobs. No, no Mexican has stolen the job of a person in Lancaster. But I think there's this sentiment out there that minorities are are getting food stamps and welfare and free school, and they're they're milking our system for our, our stuff. Mm-hmm. So I did not, as I said before, intend for this. I actually intended this. Guy. Yeah. <laughs> this conversation to you know barefoot running right. hunter gatherers and ultimately shamans that's that's where I yeah, that's yeah. where I wanted to go I, I, I love the way you write about yourself being um, not slovenly but like you couldn't figure out how to keep yourself in shape kind of thing and and uh, I remember <laughs> there, there's this thing unless I'm misremembering this thing about how you would wake up in the morning and make yourself a salad of just whatever was in the refrigerator yeah. as just a healthier way to start your day yeah. uh, along many along with many other things yeah. and then you run a 50-mile race in, like, torrid heat, like, serious yeah. heat. Yeah. And that's not something that you probably ever saw yourself doing even months before you actually did it. I would say even days. You, okay, even days. Even days. I was very down. Right. So how does one do that? How does one change themselves so dramatically? Well, you know, it's, I'll circle back to that for one second. But, you know, it, it makes me think about something that really perplexes me, which is, you know, here I was bashing uh, intercollegiate athletics. <laughs> Sincerely. But there's that one thing about it is... Um, Your kids are not going to get scholarships now. 
Yeah, that's done. <laughs> but the thing about it is, without Title Nine, I, I look. I was watching a middle school girls soccer, and look at these girls thinking, "Holy crap! I've never been that good at anything." So the thing about it is the the athleticism and the confidence. Like I can do this for kids who were not even teenagers yet. That's only there because they were given an opportunity to play sports, and which was denied to women for a very long time. So here I am, you know, on one hand, I'm bashing intercollegiate, or sorry, uh, scholastic sports. On the other hand, thinking, look what great good it's done. And your question about how do you get to that feeling of like you can do it all, that, that's where it begins. The way you do it is by doing it. Right. And take a couple little things, you think, holy crap, I can't believe it. But I, I feel like the way you do now is like I've done enough things now where nothing really daunts me. It's not a, que- a question of if I can, it's a question of like whether I want to, you know, like... Badwater Ultra Marathon, 135 miles across that valley. I could do it. Don't really want to, you know? <laughs> but what would have been the excluder, the ability to do it, it's now gone. I feel like I can do just almost anything if I decide I want to. So, what are some other things that you've done that, uh, again, you like fall into that category? Where I've really been intrigued by now is these animal human partnerships. Like, <clears throat> that's what I've dedicated the past year or two, and I'm yeah. mostly involved in now. And I think it's for two reasons. Because there's something about focusing on something other than yourself, which really extends your range. So I would like you, as painful as it might be, to walk us through, because I'm guessing of the 11 people that listen to this podcast, very few of them, maybe one or two, know what donkey racing is. is. So can you walk us through what it is? Sure. So um, burrow racing is this old Colorado miners tradition of running marathon distance alongside your donkey you don't ride it you actually run and the donkey's in front of me you, you run right off the donkey's haunch and the two of you will go you know the, the longest race is 29 miles it's the world championship Packboro race in Fairplay, Colorado the record for that is around 3 hours and 40 minutes so this is 29, 29 miles. miles in 3 hours and 40 minutes up a mountain and back down again if you're running essentially you know, remove the three the, the three miles to get it down to 26 miles. You're basically running a sub-three-hour marathon yeah. uh, with a donkey yeah. up and down the side of a mountain with some you know incredibly steep climbs at you know uh, double the altitude of, say, Denver. You know, So you're, you're 13,000 feet. So that's what you're doing. It's, it's a, it's, so it's a, an intense physical challenge for speed, endurance. But most of all, what I find really intriguing about it is like animal management because the trick to running with a donkey is making the donkey think that it's his idea, that he wants to do this. And, and or else they won't do it. We have three donkeys um, and a, a mixed dozen or so, around 15 or so other animals of like sheep and goats um, and various, we just had two babies born, so I've sort of lost count of what we got and how many. Uh, a bunch of chickens and a goose and some cats. So. Why, why do you have all these animals? Originally, it was just on a whim. You know, one cat showed up, so we kept the cat. And then another one showed up, so we kept the other cat. Really? And then my wife is lactose intolerant, and she heard that sheep's milk digests more easily than cow's milk. So we borrowed a neighbor's sheep, and she milked it. She liked it. So that started to happen. The turning point was really when we heard about the Falmouth goat races out near Harrisburg, where you run next to your goat. And we went out for that. So it's not just donkeys. Yeah. Well, as far as we ever heard. Yeah, okay. And this this actually began as a gag. What happened was there were a couple of old guys in Falmouth that were uh, playing a prank on one of their buddies. So they put an ad in the paper saying, next week, first annual goat race to be held. Uh, for information, call Bill. And they put his phone number in the paper. So this guy's getting phone calls all day long about the goat races. But he got so many prank calls about the goat races, he thought, well, why not actually have a goat race? So that began about uh, 20 years ago, so they've been doing it ever since. Huh. That's how we got the goats. And then the, the, the turning point was we ended up adopting uh, a neglected donkey. And we had this thing. I thought, now what are we going to do with this? And I had heard about burrow racing in Colorado, so I started to research that. And I thought, I wonder, I wonder if I can actually train this donkey so I can actually go to Colorado for this race. And so uh, the thing about doing it was I had to learn how to train the donkey. I had to un- understand how this thing operates because you really have to get between its ears if you're going to get it to, to run for you. What is, how do you train a donkey? What it's is the most difficult thing about training a donkey? Because, you know, they're naturally stubborn, right? <laughs> That's the no, they're, they're naturally self-protective. Okay. And their instinct is to lock up uh, when they're uncertain about things. Okay. So the, the trick, and again, this is where I feel like my, my, my mind has become expanded. Uh, there t- two things. One is patience. You've got to go on donkey time, not your time, uh, because you're, you're gaining trust. 
Mm-hmm. And you can't, you can't force trust. You can't rush trust. If someone doesn't trust you, you can't quickly right. sure. change that. And so imagine that on, on an animal's basis. You've got to make this animal trust you. Uh, you can beat it. You can, you can do whatever you want. But a, a donkey is genetically resistant to any form of coercion. So what you have is it's like, it's like a perfect test case of winning confidence in another creature, which, again, is great for everything. As far as like a parent, as a coworker, as a teacher, hmm. this is like the greatest lesson you want to learn is how do I get people to trust me? So what you're saying is here at the TBA school, we should get a whole bunch of donkeys. And I'm actually sort of serious about this and get kids to learn how to train them. Dude, the horse boy. The horse boy is all about that. So just talk about the horse boy for 90 yeah. seconds. Yeah. Um, what well, yeah. I forget who recommended the you book. You recommended it to me okay. um, because of uh, Rupert Isaacson? Yes. Yes. And because you were using his books. It wasn't the horse, but he was another, his other book, the shaman book, that yeah. you were to use uh, for that course you were in. Right. And you sent me the list, and I don't know why I plucked out the horse boy, and I read that, and I was like, wow, this is it. This is exactly what I, what I was intrigued by were two things. Uh, one is the way equines and animals tend to have a therapeutic effect on humans. And secondly, how humans have got to really change their thinking in order to, to cooperate and partner with these animals. And it just opened my eyes to the fact that, you know, why is, this, why is this new to us? We've been doing it for tens of thousands of years. This is a good point to sort of circle back and close things off yeah. and, and ask a question that you uh, have dodged a couple times, which is the question you just asked. Right. Um, this isn't new. Right. Like whether it's running barefoot because it, it's healthier for you in all those different ways that we talked about. Yeah. Um, whether it's eating healthier food, which is something that we sort of you know glossed over but is part of this. Learning how to co-work with animals. Yeah. These, are not, these are things that humans have done for tens of thousands of years right. to their benefit, to the animal's benefit sustainably, and yet we stopped. Right. And so now you, know, you, you said, my mind is blown by this. It's new, but it's not new. Right. Um, so, I, I don't know what if I have a question, but I'm just I'm flabbergasted by this all the time that it keeps coming to this point where it's just like when I learn about these new things and I, it did really start with your book when I took off my shoes and I was like, this is so simple. It's such a basic fact. And we right. talked about hunter gatherers right. chasing down their prey by running after them. Yeah. That makes so much logical sense. Right. Why are we so stubborn to logic? Well, you know, I just I'm, the, the I, phrase you use about new things. I've come to the point now where if it's new, I don't trust it. I don't trust it because it means somebody has created it and marketed it and pushed it as like this is better. And to me, if, there, if there's not a real long bloodline, or, you know, if there's not a pedigree, I, I, I doubt it. So, you know, even looking at like, at like diet, if I can't see examples throughout history of people over and over again eating the same way, I don't buy it. Yes, you know, uh, forage greens and saturated animal fats throughout history. So. Yeah, I feel like it's the same way. It's like I'm just being able to cherry pick one um, revelation after the other, like barefoot running. Like, of course. Uh, it's there. We always did it. We forgot about it. Um, natural movement and fat is fuel for, for natural born heroes. And this one, animal human partnerships. Again, this was one of the major breakthroughs in human history, our partnership with animals. And then we were with them side by side forever. And then, bam, we invented cars and we became city-focused, and the animals had to go. Oil. Animals don't run on oil. That's right. That's right. Exactly. You can't go to the pump and fill them up. Um, you can't go to the feed store. <laughs> but anyway, so what, what happens is we, 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 we substitute a, a superior way, a better way, and then we wonder, oh, Jesus, what, 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 what do we sacrifice here? And what we see that with animals, too, is like when... when I, if you ever watch an episode of The Dog Whisperer, Caesar Milan, this dude has built an empire on the fact that people buy dogs, and they're like, now what? Are you writing on the, the donkey training stuff? I've actually started a weekly series uh, in the New York Times, in the well of the New York Times, well section. Right, so I was going to yeah. give you the opportunity to yeah. plug your next project, yeah, yeah. again, because there's so many people who listen to this podcast. Yeah. So, so yeah, the, the book is on... Oh, this is basically this. about um, taking the race. this donkey and seeing whether we can prepare for this race but then using that that narrative of uh, training this donkey to be a racer and, and looking at all forms of like animal-human partnership uh, I, I keep reminding myself of that, that animal stuff that animal side of humans you know, that it's something you have to remind yourself of like I'm not this like digital cerebral creature I'm an animal I'm an animal like this donkey and when I'm out with the donkey running with the donkey the more I behave like an animal um, the better we get. 
My name is Paul Sherbin, and I'm a Lancastrian, born and raised. And I'm leaving in five days for a bike trip across the country. I'm going to start from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, bike down the east coast, south to Defuniac Springs, Florida. It's about 400 miles. That's the first leg. The second leg is Florida west to San Diego. And then the third leg is San Diego up the Pacific coast the whole way to Vancouver. I bought two maps, and the no. third map <laughs> I kinda, was Google Maps, basically. <laughs> I'm, I'm aiming for 115 days, which would put me in Vancouver on New Year's Eve. I'm going to figure out a lot of things on the first week between here and, and where my uncle lives in Virginia. I can't be prepared for everything, but I think... I don't know. I imagine if it's like 3 a.m. and I'm camping and I'm on someone's property in a state where people are pretty protective of their property and I get like woken up by a dude with a shotgun. He says, hey, what are you doing? I imagine I would just try to be as like peaceful and non-confrontational and gentle as possible and just leave. The thing I love about travel is the sort of unexpected things that cannot be prepared for and I don't know what they are but there will be definitely be like exciting people who I don't know right now who I'm gonna meet and have like good conversations with good experiences with I'm trying to like find a sense of confidence and compassion and self-reliance are you lacking in those things at least in some to some degree yeah really I am. I am. And I read Into the Wild with Christopher McCandless, who just leaves after graduating from college, and he pushed the limit too far. He wanted to let go of the world in a sense. Is that some of what's happening for you here? I know that you want to be in the civilized world as part of your trip, but yeah. is there also a sense? Because like a lot of people your age right now, what are they doing, Paul? Working jobs mm-hmm. in cubicles under fluorescent light. The reason I said that I thought Christopher McCandless pushed the limit a little too far is because he, I mean, maybe this is wrong, but I think in the end he was too alone and too detached from other people. Like, you can be outside of civilization and living in nature, but I still think that people, and this is just my belief, but I think people need each other, and people live as a network of interconnections. I, I, I like want to speak with people and build, I guess, like fleeting, but still wor- like worthy relationships with the people that I meet each day as I travel into communities that I did not grow up in. Part of it is I want to do something that scares me. Like I'm definitely terrified by this whole trip. <laughs> and I think it yeah, by, like, doing this trip and not conquering fears, but sort of working with them and figuring out what I am afraid of internally and trying to just figure out what that dynamic is will spiders. be a... I'm, dude. Spiders. I hate spiders. There's going to be a lot of spiders. And snakes. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's basically, like, the one main reason why I would never do this. <laughs> I'm putting myself in a vulnerable place... Because I want to unearth the things that I'm hiding from others and that I'm hiding from myself. Why would one want to unearth the hidden secrets and mysteries and scariness inside them? Okay, so in the small moments where I have been vulnerable and sort of let myself be human have been very gratifying. We're checking in here with uh, with Paul Sherbin, who is currently in Florida, and um, he has, uh, I guess, traveled down the coast on a bicycle, and um, how's that going? I mean, I'm enjoying it, the trip. There's some lonely moments. This is my 25th day. Well, the one thing that has struck me recently is how I never 
know what's going to happen or where I'm going to end up, but every single day I somehow manage to find food and a place to sleep. Everything works out. I was in the south of Winston-Salem in North Carolina, and it was 110 degrees, so I, I went into a McDonald's, was just planning to like go use their bathroom and fill up on water. And I walk in there, and this guy is sitting there on his phone, and he looks up at me, and we start talking. And I end up spending um, like the next two and a half hours in there just talking to probably a 28-year-old black man who the night before slept in a dumpster behind the McDonald's because his, his wife kicked him out of the house. Why do you think he started speaking to you? Well, I walked in all sweaty and gross with my, like, neon worker vest. And he, he looked at me like, where are you coming from? And I told him, Pennsylvania. <laughs> and he said, I don't believe that for a second. <laughs> and we started talking. It just became clear that he was, you know, in a, in a place of sort of lack of friends in the community and lack of money and... The only person he knows in that town was his wife and his one-year-old kid. Now, take me away from the McDonald's. Take me away from other people and talk to me about you alone in the heat, in the rain, in, you know, riding your bike on whatever roads, um, finding shelter at night. How do you do this? What's it like? I've been sleeping at churches like on the lawn or firehouses fire halls are usually pretty friendly every church i've gone to has let me sleep in their lawn and like given me food basically which is really generous and then sometimes if there's no churches or fire halls i will go into a neighborhood and just knock on people's doors and say hey i'm paul i'm biking across the country do you mind if I camped out on your lawn for the night before I head out in the morning? And if the first family says no, they don't feel comfortable with that, the second family always says yes. And that's been really cool, too, to just see people open up to providing for a complete stranger. Are you achieving your objective, or has your objective changed? One of them has been to like slow down, and I think I'm I'm doing that successfully through meditating and happily stopping places rather than rushing through the 60 miles each day. I have a journal that I write in. Um, Why don't you open to a random spot and read like four sentences? All the love in this house, Jeff and Shell. Yes, crying a bit in Shell when Jeff said working with kids is rewarding. I didn't know what I needed, and Jeff gave me exactly what I needed. Company, advice, direction, memory of Edwin. Other times, I ask for what I need. I get rejections, but I keep asking. And then I get a bed, ribs, laundry, shower, stories, community, love. Fresh sunbeams north of Albany. Feels good to realize when I am putting too much pressure on myself. Yes to perseverance and letting go of rejections. Yes to rejection as the path towards those who want me. Like the, so the guy that I met in McDonald's, he was saying, like he wishes he could get up on his bike and just travel, just get out of here. And as we were leaving, I was thinking about how it's, it is different when I, when it's six o'clock and I am a white person and I knock on someone's door asking to tent in their lawn, it would be different if I was not white. Um, I think it would be harder to get a place to sleep every night. Thank you for listening to this episode of What We Will Abide. The music you heard is by Chris McDougall's wife, Mika Cox McDougall, playing the ukulele. She plays with a community group here in Lancaster called Ukulele Uprising. Christopher McDougall is, as mentioned before, the author of two books, Born to Run 
and Natural Born Heroes. He also has several recent articles in the New York Times Well section, in which he tells the story of Sherman the Donkey at length. Paul Sherman is now back in Boston, although as you heard, he started his ride from his hometown in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He finished his ride a few days before New Year's of 2017 in San Francisco. The trip totaled 115 days and 4,500 miles. As Paul says, he learned a lot about his anxieties and that anyone who claims to be successful on their own is likely to be lying. He said he biked alone across the country and the trip required individual determination, focus, and self-control, but there's simply no way he could have done it without the support and kindness of strangers. As always, you can find older episodes of What We Will Abide at samschindler.com. That's S-A-M-S-C-H-I-N-D-L-E-R.com. And on the What We Will Abide Facebook page. You can leave comments on the website or leave a review and a rating on iTunes. You can also tweet at me at samschindler43. Once again, my profound thanks to WLRI for taking a chance and broadcasting these shows. I really, really appreciate it. More to come.